you may contribute a verse. I'm Josh Munkin, and this is the podcast You May Contribute a Verse, which has a simple mandate to give voice to creators, their struggles, successes, and the stories of their creation. And now, Season 2, Episode 2, People 2. Asma Zehenak Khan is the author of two series that we talk about in our conversation today. She's got an incredibly storied and qualified history as a former professor and current PhD in international human rights. Her debut novel, the first in her mystery series starring Toronto detectives Rachel Getty and Asa Katak, was released in 2015 and deals with the aftermath of the 1995 Bosnian-Srebrenica massacre as a central investigation with a lot more to it that we'll get into during our chat. Asma also has a fantasy series wrapping up this year. It's a quartet of novels, originally planned at three but expanded to four in the style of George R.R. R. Martin, set in a fantastical version of the Muslim world. The Khorasan Archives, incredibly, are an epic fantasy series that have come out one per year, which is a breakneck pace, starting with 2017's Bloodprint and concluding with this year's Bladebone. The books, starring Arian Sinia and Daniar on a quest to right wrongs, depict an all-too-familiarly adjacent anti-intellectual setting, with the heroes trying to preserve knowledge and heritage in the face of ignorance. Speaking of things concluding, we talked appropriately on the eve of Ramadan's end, in a unique year where our collective situation is ripe for month-long reflection, but at least in my case, it's really challenging when it comes to fasting if the snacks we keep in the house are any indication. This conversation's been one that's been a long time coming, and I'm really happy to have had a chance to do this chat. Let's go now to Osma Zehana Khan's verse. Yeah, it's um, it's it, the Night of Power is one of the last ten. It, it's one of the last ten nights of Ramadan, and it it's basically one of the odd number nights, but the actual date is not specified. So it's a time for staying up and praying and reflection and just you know trying to connect spiritually. So what what is it? I was curious. What is it that determines whether or not it's the Night of Power? So we don't really know. We just know like in, in, in the Quran and in the tradition that it's sometime in the last 10 nights of, of Ramadan. And that a lot of a lot of Muslims use that time as a spiritual retreat and they actually use every night. But I could only, out of the last 10 odd nights, so that would be five nights, I could only do two. It, uh, d- and doing two means staying up. Staying up, observing a lot of extra prayer, reading Quran, you know, um, making supplication for things that you want or praying for people that you want to pray for. Just any kind of like spiritual reflection or study, listening to lectures. So I have some friends in Toronto that I FaceTime with and they help me to stay up. And then we often listen to stuff together or they give me things to read or vice versa. So it's nice. It gives you a little bit of a sense of community. So you're not quite as alone. It's like an accountability team. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, cool. What do you expect for tomorrow? Uh, tomorrow is the last day of Ramadan, so I can't wait for it to be over. <laughs> I've seen you on Twitter posting the the fractions, the Ramadan fractions. Yes, I'm very fond of my fractions. <laughs> it's how I get through telling myself, oh, I've done this much, I have that much left. Do you do you look forward to the month? Oh, yes, absolutely. Every year. I've been fasting since I was nine, so it's a it's just a regular part of my life. Well, uh, I'm excited to talk to you. I know it's been, I think it was about a year ago that uh, I got the ARCs of the first three books in the series. Um, and uh, and life happens, you know, just like my kids are in the other room <laughs> watching TV. Uh, life, life happens and we adapt. And I'm glad that we're here now because now I know that you have the ARCs of the last book in yes, the series. That's right. So I'm curious, what, how do you think of yourself as a creative person? In the context of the the very small snippet at the bottom of all of your books that is really interesting and varied, um, what kind of a creative are you? That's a good question. I'm not really sure how to answer it, but I think I'm just someone who has something to say and a compulsive need to tell stories in order to say it. Um, I think I'm fairly productive most of the time and disciplined, and I'm someone who really enjoys um, literature and poetry and sort of um, a, a broader approach, many perspectives at the same time that I like to introduce into my writing through my characters. And I'm also really interested in history and language, politics. Uh, so those are all things that I try to bring out in my work. And um, 
I, I, I have a process where my first draft, of course, like with most writers, is very rough, but then I'm in this process of continual refinement because it's not just that I have something to say, but that I'm looking for the most effective and sometimes the most beautiful or literary way to communicate it and say it. Yeah. So I don't know. Is that a good answer to that question? It is the answer. It's a good answer to me. If it's true <laughs> to you, then it's a good answer. Good. Um, when, when did you start thinking of yourself as a writer? I think all my life because I've been writing from a very young age um, and always doing things on the side. I've always written lots of essays. I've always been involved with um, school newspapers and community newspapers. When I was in high school, I was um, I was the editor of our school paper, but I also founded a literary journal and I was writing columns for the local uh, city paper as well. So I've been doing it in some form all my life. When I was in my late teens, early 20s, that was a particularly prolific period for me. I can't say the work was good, but I was extremely enthusiastic about writing it. And I wrote a lot of poetry and plays and songs at that stage. So I've just, that's always been a, a medium of communication for me and um, both in fiction and nonfiction. And so in the family and the community, I'm known as the person that you approach if you need a letter written for any purpose, whether it's administrative or a customer complaint or a personal statement. I work with a lot of kids in the community on those kinds of things too. So I think it's always been a part of my consciousness, but in terms of um, having developed my technique more and having studied it and refined it a little more, I think that would be the last 10 years, really. Do you consider your academic background in teaching as a deviation from written communication or a sort of a distillation of it? I think one thing I often say is that there's this thread of continuity in all my work, that effectively I've been doing the same kind of work no matter what type of career I've been in, and that's advocating for human rights. Um, so I've had a period where I worked as an immigration lawyer, where I taught international human rights law, had a period where I was the editor of a magazine, a North American magazine called Muslim Girl. And we told a lot of stories uh, that were essentially human rights stories about the protection of human rights and human dignity. And in my novels, too, that's really the same, the same themes that I return to over and over again, what it means to have and hold human dignity, how to protect it and how we respond when it's threatened. And I find all these different myriad of ways of talking about those same issues through my work. You answered a big part of what I was curious about. Maybe we can explore that more, um, that there is there is this strong through line of human rights, which is your, your background, but this strong through line of, of caring and compassion and um, exploration of the not just the cultures that you came from, but these other sort of like downtrodden, more persecuted cultures. Um, it's it's advocacy through fiction. Is that a, a good way to think about it or how you think about it? I think so. I mean, I've always been uh, consumed by the idea that you don't just write to tell a story, but that your novel should be about something. It should matter. And if at all possible, it should make a difference. Uh, so part of what I do is advocacy. Part of it is simply um, education and information, then of course a large part of it is storytelling, uh, engaging a reader, drawing them in, getting them excited about your characters, your plot, your pacing, the world that you've created. And then as a consequence of that, then having them be drawn into the deeper themes that you're writing about, which you're right, is definitely uh, advocacy for human rights and human dignity. Do you find, especially with the mystery series, the Asa Katak and... Um and Rachel Getty, uh, the series, do you find it difficult to weave in successfully the history with the mystery? Uh, I don't find it difficult, but certainly there was a learning curve for me in terms of how to combine fiction and nonfiction. So um, as someone with a legal background, particularly in human rights law, you know that it's very important to have your facts absolutely straight so that they can't be challenged and so that people can't deny that these crimes and abuses are taking place. So that's that's been a little bit difficult to stay as true to the facts as possible while we've weaving this narrative around them. And I think I've learned a lot from the first book to the fifth about how to um, organically incorporate material like that, how to make it more palatable, how to make it more accessible through the lens of character experiences and character perspectives. And I've learned a lot from the editors that I've worked with. So for example, in the first book, The Unquiet Dead, where I wanted to write about 
the fallout of the Bosnian genocide, I had put in so much more material and that was eventually cut, I would say some 25,000 words. And it was a really good lesson for me because nearly all of that material was driven by a nonfiction narrative about the nature of the crimes that took place during the Bosnian genocide. But I, I really, one of the things that I worked very closely with my editor with and then learned was that less really is more, that you don't need to overwhelm a reader, particularly of crime fiction with all these facts and figures and statistics and horrors. All you need to do is tell a very human story uh, that you know embodies a few of those things. And then you can, that larger picture sort of comes into focus as well. It's hard to cut 25,000 words though out of a manuscript, I imagine. <laughs> it was. And you, of course, as the writer, you think they're all brilliant and you want to keep them. But I, between the, the, you know, the early product and the final draft, you see what a difference there is in quality, and you understand that your that your editor, in my case, a brilliant young, young editor by the name of Elizabeth Lax, absolutely knew what she was talking about. And then the book was so much better for it in the end. Give a shout out to those who have helped you sort of uh, concentrate the work. Do you do anything else with that research? Then the things that that get cut out. I mean, I, I have huge files on pretty much every human rights issue that I'm interested in. Uh, in the case of the Bosnian genocide, I've written about it a lot. It was the subject of my PhD dissertation. I also did my master's degree on one aspect of it, the International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia. So I've published some nonfiction. Uh, I've published several essays. There was a period where I wrote a lot of poems and songs and short stories about the Bosnian genocide, a lot of it in incorporating this material, but not necessarily in exactly the same form. So you had a lot to work with for that first I did, book. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want any of that time or that experience or that education to be wasted. And also, I thought it was something very important to add my voice to, to speak up and to participate in the process of memorializing and um, struggling to achieve justice I'm curious if it was hard to transition from that first novel that represented so much of your work and research into other areas. Um, I think actually the first novel, because I had spent so much time in that space, thinking about those issues, uh, sitting with refugee testimony, survivor testimony, war crimes trials, and so on. Um, so that that process of getting that novel out of me, moving it from a dissertation to a novel form, it was very difficult and challenging, but the research wasn't as difficult because I, I already knew that material. I knew the stories that I wanted to tell. Um, and it was kind of a huge relief to finally have written that novel and have it out in the world because I always felt this, that I hadn't done enough in terms of what I knew about about the Bosnian genocide to, to do my share to, to speak up about it and bring it out into a public forum. So it was a sense of having fulfilled a responsibility, um, a sense of lightness afterwards almost. And so trans transiting to the other books, uh, it was a it was a process for, for me to learn as a novelist uh, how to construct a plot that's compelling, how to pace it, how to deepen and develop your characters. I, I didn't have any trouble coming up with subject matter because right from the beginning, I've had a long list of topics that I want to write about um, and that I, throughout my life, I've been researching anyway and, and, and keeping my... Um, I guess what I would call my reading in the field very current, but uh, how, every every new novel where you try to figure out the plot to construct around that information is still a bit of a challenge. Some books were much easier than others to write. The Language of Secrets was a much easier book for me to write. Um, I would say A Dangerous Crossing was probably the hardest because of the nature of the material, but there's certain things that you learn as you go on in terms of how to write a better mystery novel each time. How do you think about the evolution, and this is this is straight into character here for Asa and Rachel. How do you think about the nature of their relationship and how you characterize them in the context of the broader human rights narratives that you're weaving? Well, I when I began writing the series conceptually, I knew that I wanted to start in a certain place with this, these characters. And because I'm a, a fan of series fiction, I've studied how um, characters evolve through the course of not five books, but 10 or 15 books, how their lives change and develop and, and they grow with every story and the reader grows with them. And that's something that I've always very much enjoyed in reading crime fiction. So that's something I really wanted to develop, to develop with my own series too. And so I knew from the beginning that um, Issa's and Rachel's relationship was going to be at, at the beginning stages, it was going to be characterized by suspicion, and they had to build something together. They had to work towards a moment of trust 
by the time you get to book five in the series. But individually for Issa, I wanted him to begin in a place where you don't really know much about him and he's very closed off internally. He's guarded in terms of how he presents himself to his colleagues and, the, and his personal, his private side and his public side are very different. Um, he's very relaxed in his own environment, but he's very uh, cautious, guarded, wary, uh, in terms of the crimes that he's solving, the communities that he's moving in, and then the larger community that he's both representing and speaking back to. So in book one, we have this um, dignified, but very silent and uncommunicative detective who's building a relationship with a, a woman detective who's quite the opposite. She's outspoken, she's brash, she doesn't hesitate to challenge him professionally. She's curious about who he is, uncertain about as a male police officer, how he's going to treat her because she's had all these negative experiences in the police force. And she's she plays a large part in sort of unraveling Issa through the course of the books and getting him to put let, let go of his guard and open up a little bit. And so by the time you get to book five in the series, both these characters have grown and changed a lot. And Issa has become much more forthright, much more open, less guarded, more sure of himself, more confident, uh, more confrontational, and even to the point where he's he's ready to let his emotions loose. And as someone described it to me after reading A Deadly Divide, that he's really wrung out in that book. And I think that was a, a fairly accurate assessment that he's been through a lot and he, he can't preserve that carefully maintained public persona anymore by the time we get to book five. So that was a, as a writer, that was a very narratively, a very rich journey for me to take Isa on. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of ringing out, you in my experience reading your work, you really like to ring your characters out. Quite <laughs> You're a bit. right, I and do. And put them through a lot of tribulations. <laughs> You're right, I do. Do you have that relationship mapped out? Do you have a goal in mind for the series? Well, yes, I think my goal was that, uh, and, and this is also sort of formulated by my training looking at the Bosnian genocide, that, you know, the genocide comes to us as a shock. Um, as this terrible crime, and it's but it's an ending. And what I was always interested in were the beginnings. How, you don't just come to genocide; you come to genocide by a thousand small incremental steps. And so I've always been interested in my legal work in examining those incremental steps and how you know you wear a society down over time. You make these crimes palatable to them through a series of techniques that may involve state propaganda. Um, that may involve uh, falsely miscasting a particular population, enacting new laws against them, removing them from public positions, and so on. So that was in the back of my mind the whole time, but that's also um, relevant to how I'm going to structure the series from beginning to end. So you begin with Issa in a certain place, and the common running theme throughout the novels is this theme of Islamophobia, and what it's like to be living in this era as a devout practicing Muslim in the West who's up against these very pernicious forces, constantly speaking back to your identity, mischaracterizing it, often demonizing it. So um, I knew that I was beginning with Isa in a place where he is, as I mentioned before, guarded and careful, but where he he's evolving so that through the course of the books, you could see that the Islamophobia was a little bit more subtle. It was a little bit more hidden and his responses to it were more considered um, with very much with his career in, in mind as much as his community in mind. But the by the time you get to the deadly, a deadly divide, you can't hide what's been happening anymore. It's very blatant. It's in your face. So just that process of showing what it's like to internalize it and then to develop a strategy for dealing with it, because none of us have a, uh, a strategy that works all the time or feel the same about it at any given moment. But over this process of incrementalism and accretion of these thousands of small hits, you get to this place where you realize it's now it's all right for people to say all kinds of things where they're not bothering to disguise their racism. Um, they're not bothering to consider your humanity. And in terms of how they confront you, it's very blatant. And so how is a character like Isa going to respond to that? So I think I've taken him from a place in the beginning to where you may not have known what he's actually dealing with to the end with the the crime in a deadly divide is a mosque shooting, which I think is the most blatant example you could have short of genocide um, as to how this, this demonization plays out in real life and then have these characters in these different novels respond to the different strains of Islamophobia that you see. What do you think about the relevance of the subject matter? I mean, you, you, you talk about genocide as a process of a thousand cuts and a thousand incursions and, and accretion over time. That coupled with the is Islamophobia, 
subject matter of your books is a little bit relevant? What's your reaction to that? Or how do you think about their place in the real world? I'm definitely writing about the real world. I'm sort of summarizing and contextualizing the experience of individual Muslims and of entire communities, uh, a reality that I've known all my adult life at a very intimate level. Um, And then even before my adult life would trickle in as I was a child or an adolescent where you would have these instances of confronting it, not really recognizing it for what it is, trying to explain it away to yourself, trying to excuse it. In many situations, you'd feel cornered and forced to defend yourself and you'd engage in a kind of apologetics. So I wanted to capture that whole range of of experience for Muslims in the West, in Western communities, Muslims like me, people from backgrounds like mine, um, how we uh, move through our contemporary society, how we interrogate our own reality, and to do it through the lens of this Muslim character. And of course, I think it's extremely relevant now because, um, you know, in the years since 9-11, that that sense of pervasive Islamophobia has only deepened in the American context. In many cases, it's been legislated. Uh, and there's, I think, a lot of things that the broader community may not know about, such as how difficult it is to get a permit to have a mosque built as a place of worship. And then this idea of our mosques being vandalized across the country in all these little ways, or if a woman or a man who is um, visibly identifiable as Muslim goes out in public, depending where they are, the kind of hate speech, and in some cases, hate crimes that they may encounter. We just saw the case of this young British girl who was shot and killed by a man, a hijab wearing girl. So I don't think it could be more relevant to be talking about these issues. And I think this idea of the demonization of minority communities doesn't just apply to Muslim communities in the West. It applies to or Western Muslim communities, I should say, they're not they're not really a, a foreign proposition, but very much indigenous. And that's that's what Isa represents, this kind of indigenous Canadian Islam. So it doesn't really, these themes don't just apply to Muslims, but also to other minority groups, uh, visible minorities, as we call them in Canada, or marginalized groups um, here in the United States. Uh, so we could be talking about African-American communities or Latino communities and so on. Um, and this idea that groups can be singled out because of difference and then have their human dignity and their human rights violated. And then it suddenly becomes very easy to say, to over-police those communities or to talk about them in immensely derogatory or pejorative terms and not see a real pushback to that. So I think the books very much represent the politics of the moment and the, the reality that we're living through with these increasingly polarized politics that engage in scapegoating. And uh, that's why I wanted to write about them. I, I want my books to be meaningful. I want them to be about something. I want us, I want the reader to have a moment to reflect on, on what we're living through and then to consider what their own position on these issues might be. And that's why the characters in my book usually represent a range of perspectives on these various issues. Is how you think about your faith in fiction different when you approach the Khorasan archives? or placing your faith in the context of something that's a bit more natural and less marginalized? That's a good question. Uh, Yes, I definitely have a very different approach for both series. And I often describe the difference as with the mystery series, I'm looking outward to tensions between different communities. But with the fantasy series, I was really looking inward at the communities that I come from and the heritage that I share in common with all heirs to the Islamic civilization across the broad sweep of the Muslim world, which is very diverse, very pluralistic, very different in its histories, heritage, and practices. And when I was looking inward at the Khorasan archive series, and particularly to my own background as a Pathan or Pashtun woman, um, whose roots lie in Pakistan, India, and Afghanistan, I was aiming to be much more self-critical, looking at particular areas and moments of crisis and decline throughout the Muslim world, In my case, it would be um, northern Pakistan and Afghanistan and interrogating how faith can often be used as a weapon against different members of the community. And when we're looking at Afghanistan and Pakistan, naturally, I'm thinking of the Taliban and um, incursions against women's and girls' rights and minority rights in the name of faith. So I wanted to look at that, that process as a person who believes in the same faith, who has read a great deal about it who still has a lot to learn, but to look at how faith can be weaponized and how we arrive at these different interpretations of faith 
and also how the solution for communities from deeply religious societies uh, doesn't rely on outside intervention or rescue, but rather on reclaiming a tradition for yourself. And that's really what the Khorasan archives are about, because in these deeply religious societies, you can't say the solution is to um, is to do away with religion. That's not organic. The new form must be congruent with the old to have any legitimacy in the eyes of its own in, this, in the eyes of the in the eyes of the society. So I, I wanted to explore that question of how faith is weaponized what makes that possible and how we might speak back to it from within the same tradition. But I, I've often compared it when I was reading the novels, I've compared it to something like Tolkien, which has its own, you know, challenges and, and, uh, and issues with it. But um, it's a very westernized, understandable uh, type of fantasy. Um, I'm curious how you think about the time period or how, how adjacent to um, that cultural experience you you wanted to make it or it is or or how you thought about it when you were conceptualizing the series that's another very good question so i've also read a lot of fantasy that is immediately recognizable for its cultural context or its religious context or the myths and sagas that it's relying upon to develop the world building and so that really inspired me and intrigued me and i thought I've seen a lot of that in the Western context, but I've seen very little of it from my own tradition and heritage, at least in the English language and um, in contemporary fantasy publishing. So I wanted to excavate what I thought of as a very rich history, a very rich civilizational tradition, which is typically um, in Western popular culture cast in very negative and reductive ways, as if there was never anything of beauty or elegance or sophistication uh, that it ever contributed to world history. So that was kind of my starting place. And I, I was thinking about a number of different things uh, when I first conceptualized the Khorasan archives. I'd been thinking, I began simply by thinking about a love story back when I, I tried my my first draft of this novel, of the first novel, I think I was in high school. And I, to me, it was just a very simple love story with some magic. But as I grew older, traveled the world a bit more, learned a lot more about my own history and tradition and my parents' culture and their journey um, and their connection to faith, I began to see how much there was to explore there and how many different stories existed and how much myth-making was possible. There's so many interesting myths and legends within the Islamic tradition that apply across the sweep of the Muslim world. And so I thought that would be it's, it's such great material for world building, first of all, but it also really lends itself well to a commentary on different um, endemic or systemic problems within, within certain Muslim societies, including the ones that my parents come from. So it was, a, it was a framework that allowed me to comment on those issues. And then part of it was I really wanted to, I was really um, challenged, I guess, and concerned with the idea of women's rights. Uh, under the hegemony of groups like the Taliban. And then, of course, there were these commonalities, not just with the Taliban in Pashtun communities, um, which is the community that I come from. And I mean, the Taliban is primarily made up of Pashtuns. So I wanted to write about my own community and the experiences of women and girls in those communities um, and the rights that they were being deprived of, particularly the right to safety and the right to education. So that was where I began in terms of who my lead character is, Aryan or Ariane, to use um, Afghan pronunciation, Ariane, and uh, and to have her be from a background similar to myself in a situation where she's facing a group called the Talisman, which is very much like the Taliban. So it has very contemporary resonances. But I had imagined a world in, in constructing the Khorasan archives that we're looking at a, a thousand years from our, our moment right now in the same world or the world that's analogous and a people who are so deeply mired in ignorance which is really what the Taliban characterized, despite the fact that in Pashto, their name means students. But it's referring to the students of these madrasas or these Islamic schools who are educated in this very severe and extremist interpretation of Islam. And there's no really room for questioning or speaking back or exploring a more ethical or humanist interpretation of faith. So this, you see this society and this world that's completely mired in ignorance. And I, I was, it was sort of a commentary on how when you strip people of knowledge, when you ban the written word, when you ban independent thought and free thought and you, and the free press and you disenfranchise fully half of your population, what's the outcome going to be? So I was trying to imagine in my mind if a group like the Taliban or Boko Haram or ISIS or Al-Qaeda 
was allowed to follow their trajectory through all the way to its natural conclusion, where would we end up? And what you see is you, you would end up with the demonization of minorities. You would end up with the complete disenfranchisement of women and girls. And so what would that society look like? And why would women and minority groups in those societies stand for it? And then how might they fight back? So that was a big part of the storytelling in the Horizon Archives. And then the other part of it was to expand it beyond um, my own specific ethnic and cultural heritage of Pashtun communities in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and then reach out and make those connections to the broader Muslim world and not just these, the things that I've just mentioned, this deep negativity and these deeply horrifying anti-human rights groups such as ISIS, et cetera, but to look at what that civilization and that culture had historically produced in terms of its philosophy, its argumentation, its monuments, um, its diversity, its commitment to the written word, because as I, I often say, the civilization of Islam is a civilization of the book. It's a civilization of the word. And that sort of became the framework or the lens through which my, my main characters, these women warriors, operate, is that they, these women represent the civilization of the book and the civilization of the word. And that's what they're fighting to reclaim, because they believe if they can reclaim it, their salvation lies within it. So I was able to take, you know, places as diverse as Uzbekistan and Iran and Mali and Mauritania and Jerusalem, and, and look at the myths and traditions and cultures and the Islamic touchstones that flow through that history and bring them into the world of the Khorasan archives so I could interrogate these themes that I'm interested in. I'm, I'm curious, you said uh, the word reclaim. Um, I, I'm curious how you think about magic in the Khorasan archives. Um, it, it is through the written word or their link with the written word as it relates to their culture. Um, how, how do you think about how that works, the mechanics of magic? which in a lot of fantasy has very strict rules and seems to be a bit more fluid and relational in Horizon Archives. You're right, it is. And I didn't want to box myself in with that kind of world building, even though when I see it and I read it for myself and other writers' work, I really enjoy it. I wanted to suggest that there was a lot of fluidity um, and flexibility, but particularly I wanted to say that this magic is best used by women and these knowledgeable women mystics who know their tradition. But when I, I was really relying a lot on these, um, I don't know if touchstones is the right word, but these, uh, I guess, hallmarks of everyday life as, as a, a believing Muslim. So yes, we are a civilization of the word and a civilization of the book, but a huge part of our culture and our religious heritage is the oral tradition. So for those who believe in divine revelation, that was an oral transmission and before it was ever written down and, and um, compiled in the Uthman Quran or the, uh, the Sinai Codex, for example, these fragments of the Quran, uh, people memorized it. And people who knew it from beginning to end were called Hafiz. They'd memorized, and if it was a woman, Hafiza had memorized the Quran from beginning to end. So I was exploring this idea, and I even used this Arabic term in, in the series Qari, someone who recites, and Qira, to read. Um, I was exploring this idea that the recitation of a sacred scripture is itself magical. But on the surface, then that means anyone who could read or recite would have access to magic. But in, in the reality of the Khorasan archives, it was much deeper than simply uh, reading a line on a script or knowing it off by heart and then being able to recite it. You had to also be connected to the words through belief, through some ethical effort, through endeavor, um, and through faith. And if you weren't, that would depend, that would limit your access to employ or deploy this magic. And in, in Islamic cultures across the Muslim world, um, the ability to recite the Quran beautifully is considered, a ver it's very highly valued. And there's even these Quran competitions where children learn from a young age how to recite, and there's different styles of recitation. So people knowledgeable in these areas um, really value it. And so I always saw that as a kind of, and especially in Ramadan, which we call the month of the Quran, um, we valued that recitation so much. And someone who does it beautifully in a, in a very elegant style is very is a very admired and revered member of the community. So to me, that that in itself was magical. And that's the I, that's where the idea came from for me, that this would be the magic, that the word itself could be so powerful, but I didn't want it to just be surface level 
I wanted it to be tied to a deeper ethical construction. So it gave me a lot of room to play. I don't know if I may have crossed some boundaries or gone too far, but uh, it was very rewarding for me in terms of imagination and creativity in a way very freeing. And it was also a way of um, paying tribute to things that a lot of other people don't find beautiful or don't see any value in. So for example, if you consume any popular culture at all, or just follow the news, you'll see the phrase Allahu Akbar has been, which means just God is great or God is the greatest, has been demonized in so many contexts. So whenever you see a terrorist on a show like Homelander 24, they're shouting out this phrase before they commit some horrific act of violence against innocent people. But in our civilizational context, of course, that's not how we construe it. Like a, a practicing Muslim will say that phrase a hundred times a day when they're praying or when they're happy or when they just, you know, your kid did well at school, you'll recognize it in some way. So to us, it's a phrase of inescapable beauty and power. So in constructing the magic in the series in the way that I have, I was kind of speaking back to that a little bit and reclaiming it for myself and saying, what you view as horrific and terrible, you've taken something that's sacred to us and that's beautiful to us and you've completely demonized it and i'm going to reclaim it for myself and for my characters what do you think um what do you think of the completion of the series i mean you yourself are done with it at least as far as the writing goes um it's four books your goal when you set out to write the course on archives was the four book quad quad quadrilogy Quadrilogy quartet. Okay. <laughs> quartet, there you go. That's a better, more concise way to say it. Um, you had it mapped out from the beginning. You knew it was going to be four books. Um, did you Did you know uh, what was going to happen? So I had to, um, when I was trying to sell the books in the series, I had to present a synopsis of each of the novels. And when I originally conceived of it, it was really only a trilogy. But then as I got deeper into uh, writing the synopsis for each individual book, I realized it was just too much story for me to contain within three books. And there were so many things that I wanted to explore. And just in a logistical sense, I was taking these characters on this massive journey across different parts of the Muslim world. And I needed more time to get them to those places and then have them have meaningful interactions in those places and reflect some of that culture and that history. So I realized, no, I'm going to have to go to four books. But after, um, I think I was maybe two books in sometime in the middle of of writing the Black Khan, which is the second book, I realized that it actually was too much story, even for four books. So um, I, I, I probably didn't plot as well as I should have at the beginning. And often, like, it's an organic process. So when you're writing, new things come up that you didn't uh, didn't think of in your outline, or you get new sparks of imagination, or you come across new information in your research, and you think, that's really fascinating. I have to put that in my series somewhere. So I would just be, you know, on Twitter, following different historians or scholars or linguists, and I would see something really interesting that I hadn't conceived of in my four book series. And I go, no, that has to go in. Some of the weapons one of the villains in my series uses, I just came across those on Twitter. And I'm like, hmm, that is too good to pass up. And I need to go back into my outline and figure a way to tell a storyline around this particular weapon. So one of the characters, um, Najran, has a nickname, the Iron Glaive, which refers to a weapon. That's a weapon I saw on Twitter. And I thought, my God, that's beautiful. And I need to find a way to use that somehow in my story. And so I had lots of little serendipitous encounters like that, not just through Twitter, but you know, through research and reading. So in the beginning, you start somewhere, you have a plan, you have a project, but the story then evolves into a life of its own. So I'm not sure that... Um, I think I spent so much time building that world and there's so much more room in there for more storytelling stories that I felt may have been a little bit rushed or I could have explored in greater detail and would love to return to. So I feel that this particular, this, these particular characters, their arc is definitely complete, but there's so much more to do in that world is my personal feeling about it. Are you going to revisit it? Or do you have I would plan, love to. Have concrete plans to. Yeah, I, I certainly would love to. I'm in the process of trying to outline something, but um, I guess we'll have to see, you know, is there any interest in it? Can I move it forward or not? But I would I would love to stay in that world. There's more stories that I want to tell um, because I, I broadened the story so much by the fourth book. So in the beginning, we're really in Afghanistan and Uzbekistan, but in the fourth book, it's much broader. And so I would actually like to go back and spend more time just sort of exploring Pashtun history and culture and and sort of reorienting it around this fantasy world, make it a little bit more specific, a little bit more intimate. You, um, I, I love 
the reality that is you had a very well mapped out story and then Twitter happened? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and I also want to call out for anyone that, that ends up listening to this who has not read The Blue Eye yet. Najran is a very cool bad guy and the, and the glaive is very cool and his daggers are very cool. Oh, so great. I'm glad you stay, think so. <laughs> stay, stay tuned <laughs> or, or, or I guess tune in if you haven't already. <laughs> So one of his daggers, the Emerald Dagger, um, I had seen in 1998. I had been studying abroad in the Middle East, and I was on my way home, and I detoured through Istanbul, and I went to Top Copy Palace just to look at the treasures. And that was that experience of the museums there um, inspired so much of the blood print. So for one thing, I saw the Emerald Dagger as one of the exhibits. And I just stood in front of it for, I think, an hour examining it from all angles and thinking what an absolutely gorgeous piece of art this is, in addition to being a deadly weapon. And it was in my mind that, you know, don't lose this asthma. Think about it, keep it, store it up, and one day find a way to put it on paper. But the other thing that was so um, definitive in terms of convincing me to write the horse on archives to follow through on the promise of the story was I had wandered into this chamber of holy relics and the entire all the palace rooms and chambers and museums were they were hot they were crowded they were packed with tourists and it was really noisy too and I was having a great time but then I wandered into the room the chamber of holy relics and it was suddenly so quiet in there and there was a lot of people in the room with me and there was this utter stillness and and sense of quiet and a kind of a hush. And, and I was taken aback by it in such contrast to my previous experience. And I thought, what's causing this? Why is everybody so quiet and still and almost like there's this reverent hush in the room? And I saw that in the center of the room, there was this manuscript that it had been preserved under glass. And it was, it was what was claimed to be the Uthman Quran. And Uthman was the third leader of the early Muslim community in Arabia. And he was said to have been assassinated while he was bent over reading a Quran and his blood then stained the manuscript. So there's a few places in the Muslim world that claim they have this authentic manuscript. But I saw it first in Istanbul. Later in life, I saw another version in Uzbekistan. And the sense that this man who's highly revered by the by, by segments of the Muslim community, um, a very important historical figure, a man who was always considered very pious and humble, and who first called for the compilation of the written Quran, that here's this manuscript of the Quran that he was murdered reading, and here's his blood staining it. And in its presence, this noisy throng of people was silent and awed and reverent. And that feeling immediately transmitted itself to me as well. Then I thought, it's incredible because this is both the power of the written word, the power of history, the power of culture, the power of the sacred and religious symbols and how they transform communities and moments. And so in the presence of that bloodstained manuscript, which in my series became the blood print, I thought I want to convey that sense of awe, that sense of reverence and that sense of the significance that the written or holy word can have in an average person's life. And you really made that... Um made that work. Uh, if we go back to your word choice, you know, excavating a culture, working in so many holy relics that inspired you. Um, you yeah, you, you really, uh, you really took that inspiration and, and made it work. I'm glad you think so. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it was at the heart of all four books, always referring back to this and it's something else that of significance that I hadn't seen myself, but which I read about a great deal when I was looking at the incursions of the Taliban in Afghanistan was the sacred cloak. So the sacred cloak becomes increasingly more significant as the series goes from the blood print to the blade bone. And, um, it's this holy relic, again, there's no way of verifying its authenticity, but it's a holy relic that's, it has its own shrine in Afghanistan, which is called the Shrine of the Sacred Cloak. And it's this cloak, which is said to have been the cloak of the Prophet Muhammad, the messenger of Islam that he wore. And so it's kept in this box inside this beautiful shrine, and it's guarded by members of the same family over history. And I even used their name in the series, but I twisted the context of using it a little bit as the defender or the guardians of this cloak. And of, cloak, of course, the cloak was only ever accessible to, you know, very um, powerful or very religious figures who had legitimacy and authority within the community. But no one had seen it in years. And then this character, this individual, Mullah Umar, who was a significant leader of the Taliban, he went to the Shrine of the Sacred Cloak, he removed it, and he wore it in front of an audience of Afghans. And 
it, it enshrined him with legitimacy because whoever wore this cloak was said to be the commander of the faithful. Um, and of course, you know, he's a man guilty of some horrendous human rights abuses. So this idea of something very holy um, representing a person who believing members of the faith think is a person who embodied the values of piety and justice and human dignity and the protection of human rights. Now his cloak is settled on the shoulders of a man who's the antithesis of all those things. So for me, that was really interesting, a really powerful symbol. Uh, and I liked the idea of that holy relics could confer legitimacy, but they could just as easily be used to manipulate people and um, confer legitimacy on people who were entirely illegitimate. So I wanted to explore that in my series. And, and that's why the cloak becomes even more important by the time you get to the blade bone. One of the questions that I think is central to the series is who has the right to wear that cloak? And in the, in the first book, Ariane, Ariane, as a woman, takes that cloak, puts it on her own shoulders and confronts a mob of men and says, who says that I don't have the right to wear this? And then there's also this boy in the series, this persecuted, this member of a persecuted minority, the Hazara. And he's like, he's dirty, he's been enslaved. And the guardian of the cloak is saying to him that, oh, you have no right to touch this cloak. And Ariane takes the cloak from the box and she touches Wafa with it. And, and she says this cloak was made for boys like him, the orphans of the world, that he has every right to it. And he's so shocked by this and awed by it and doesn't realize the truth in her words. Like he's just frightened by the idea. Um, but to me, that was a very beautiful and meaningful thing to convey. Um, uh, so I, I want to I explore just the mechanics of writing again. So something as, uh, as important and sort of significant to you to explore and complete as this quartet of novels uh, as the Horse on Ar Archives, you have put out one per year. And I see yes. on Twitter, I see, I see on Twitter the pace, the pace at which you write, and um, it, you're not, you don't have them written well in advance. You're working on a novel the year before it comes out. Is that a, is that a self-imposed discipline to work through the novels, or are you contract, contractually obligated to be productive? <laughs> I think it's a little of both, but yes, definitely the driving force is the contractual obligation. And I will say it's been absolutely brutal. I would have liked to have had, because I was also writing the mystery series at the same time, so I was actually producing two books a year, a Hachak Getty novel in the early part of the year and a fantasy novel by the fall. So it's been a brutal five years, but... Um, I mean, I have, there's two ways of looking at it is there was a long period where I wasn't having anything published, where I couldn't get anybody interested in my work and I couldn't get any books out. So why am I complaining? <laughs> I have this, I had this amazing opportunity to write nine books in five years. Um, oh I had more time with the blood print, obviously, because I'd written that manuscript uh, well in advance and had a lot of time to tinker with it. Uh, but of course, that manuscript was very heavily edited because I had a lot to learn. Um, I had to build up a lot of technique, really work on craft, uh, read more widely in the field so I could understand how these stories are told most effectively. Um, but at least I had that time with the blood print. It was much harder with the blue eye and the black Khan. Uh, the black Khan, I think the early draft was a disaster. I think my edit letter pointed out 84 major problems with it. And I basically, I felt like I had to break that book down and then rewrite it from scratch. But then I started to acquire some skill by book three and get a little bit better. And then by book four, I only had four major edits. So that was like a huge victory for me. Um, <laughs> but yes, I feel like each of those books could have taken more time. But the flip side is that I didn't just begin thinking about these issues on my contractual schedule, but they've really been issues that have intrigued me and informed me my entire life. And I'm always reading history and um, and in things that interest me in terms of travel and culture and visiting new places. So I've been collecting these files and sort of absorbing them and thinking about them deeply for a long time before I even start writing. So that gave me a little bit of a head start. And then there's just the fact that I really love to read and to learn more all the time. So that part of it is kind of a pleasure for me. Um, but yes, I definitely could have used more than six months to write each of these books. That's a fair desire for the next contract, maybe. <laughs> yeah. What is a, I think I'm not going to go back into that two books a year space just yeah, because right. I want to do justice to the work. You want to survive to write more. Yes, in the future. That too. <laughs> what, is, what does success look like for you for the Horse on Archives? Um, well, I mean, there's the obvious measure, which is that the books would sell well and they would find an audience. 
for me, because of the themes that I'm writing ab about, it really matters that the books find an audience, um, both with this series and with the crime series. Otherwise, what's the point of writing them if nobody's reading them? Yes, there's the pleasure you take in it for yourself, but you do also want to communicate with a wider audience. You want to draw people into this world and you want them to be interested in the themes and you want them to reflect on these issues from a perspective they may not have considered before. So um, so success for me would mean that people were reading these books, they were talking about them, they were agreeing or disagreeing or bringing a different perspective to bear, or if they're interested in the same things as me, history, culture, language, faith, um, they're giving me like little tidbits of information that I can use in future writing, or they're saying, hey, you didn't think about this. I just discovered this um, professor on Twitter who does these threads on these brilliant threads on angels in Islam. And I'm like, if I had discovered him five years before, you can be sure that would be in the books as well. So things like that for future writing, I would consider that success. Um, for the books to be well-reviewed, that would be success. But really at a very deep level, if the communities that I come from and that I'm trying to represent thought that the books were a fair reflection, that they were accurate, that they were meaningful, and that they in some way alleviated our collective pain or spoke to our human dignity, that would also be a very significant definition of success for me. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for taking all this time and waiting all this time for us to have this conversation. Well, thank you so much for asking such meaningful and insightful questions. It's been a wonderful conversation. Episode 21 of You May Contribute a Verse has come to its epic conclusion with the evil silence defeated at last. You can find the delightful Asma Khan and more about her Katak Getty and Khorasan Archive series on her website. Here goes, A-U-S-M-A-Z-E-H-A-N-A-T-K-H-A-N, that's asmazehanatkhan.com, or just Google Asma Khan in case you don't want to rewind to get my spelling. Asma is on Twitter at asmazehanat, sharing Ramadan fractions up till the final day, which this is. Find some gorgeous architecture and inspiration on her Instagram at azconbooks. You May Contribute a Verse is a homespun production produced, edited, recorded, conceptualized, and marketed by me, Josh Munkin, from the darkness and comfort of my basement. Find the show on Twitter and Facebook as Adverse Show. That's V-E-R-S-E-S-H-O-W. Find me on everything as Josh Monkwords, all one word. The artwork for You Make Contribute a Verse is an amazing picture commissioned for the podcast from a very talented artist, Charlie Munkin. Love you, Charlie. The show's music is provided graciously by Robbie Zarr via tracks from his album, A Tragic But Happy Horse. Engage with his music and musings at partist.com. That's P-A-R-T-I-S-T dot com. Love you too, Robbie. If you would be so kind, however you're listening to this, let me know if you do via rating, which is nice, or just a quick message. It really means a lot to me. And remember the answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. <laughs>